So, as Pastor Phil explained last Sunday, the question that has been set before us in this series is, do we perceive that God is doing a new thing? In Isaiah 43, 19, this has been our kind of key passage, see, I am doing a new thing, now it springs up, do you perceive it? So the question that's set before us is not, is God doing a new thing? No, the scripture is clear. That's his promise. He is doing new things all the time, and he is making all things new. That's what he does. The question is, do we see it? Do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? And do we have a heart to understand what God is doing and just how good and beautiful he is? Let me promise you something. He is good, and he is beautiful. I know this. I know this by experience, but I know this because his word tells me so. And I believe this by faith that we have a good God. I hope you're experiencing him this morning. So as we begin this message today called The New You, would you be kind enough to join me as I pray for our time? Father, thank you so much that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are beautiful, that you are righteous, that you are holy, and that you are worthy of our praises. God, we ask this morning that you would be glorified in our lives and our hearts and that this message, Lord God, would be spoken from you through me to our hearts and minds that we would listen carefully and that you would guide us into a deeper understanding of just what you have done for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for the deep mystery of Christ in us and thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit that is even guiding us now. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Well, as we begin today, I want to posture before you a preposition that you are richer than you know. Now, if you're in Christ Jesus, a major change has happened in you. An overwhelming change has happened in you. The greatest thing that could ever happen to you has happened to you when you came to Christ. You see, you've been given a whole new life. You've been given a whole new person. It's all new for you. The old is gone, the new has come. We'll get to that scripture in a few minutes. But I want to posture before you that you are richer than you know. Do you perceive it? Do you know just the riches of what you have in Christ Jesus. I would posture before of us that none of us know this completely, but to the extent that we know this, the more passionate we become for God. And the more passionate and zealous we become for him, the more glorified he is in and through us. So I want to start today with the story of Ira and Ann Yates. Now, this is a story that's one of my favorites, and it's from the Depression time in West Texas. Mr. Ira Rates, like many of the other ranchers and farmers, he owned a lot of land, but he also had a lot of debt. And that land was rather fruitless. It was very hard to farm, and he was just scratching a living out of the ground because there wasn't really much that would come up out of the ground that he owned. As a matter of fact, he had so much debt that he was on government assistance, And and he also was trying to pay the principal and interest on his loan, but he was in danger of losing his ranch. Very close. Very little food, um, very little clothing, very little money for things to provide for his family other than what the government subsidized that he received was. So day by day, he would graze his sheep over some of these rolling bald hills in West Texas, and he was no doubt deeply troubled about how he would pay his bills. One day... 
a seismographic crew from an oil company, came to Mr. Yates, knocked on his door, and told him that there might be oil under his land. They asked him to drill what's called a wildcat well, and he signed a contract lease, figuring, well, what do I have to lose? At 1,115 feet, this wildcat well struck one of the largest oil deposits on the North American continent at that time. The first well they drilled came in at 80,000 barrels of oil per day. Many more wells were drilled on the Yates property in the years that followed. At peak production in 1929, check this out, five of these wells alone combined produced over 112,000 barrels of oil per day. With crude oil selling for $1.19 per barrel in 1929, these five wells produced $133,000 worth of oil per day, dollars of that time. Now listen, that equates to the sum of approximately $1,759,000 per day in today's dollars in oil. Ira and Ann Yates become, became millionaires, potentially billionaires, overnight. Or did they? I would posture before you that actually they were millionaires the whole time. They just didn't know it. You see, they had owned the property the whole time. They just didn't understand what was underground. And it's fair to say that we at times, we're a lot like Mr. Yates. We are heirs of a vast treasure in the kingdom of God. And yet we live like we're in spiritual poverty, like we're on living on spiritual welfare, groaning and moaning and scratching out life around us. Listen, for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ, we have a treasure of far greater value than the Yates fortune. Let me just list a few things that are true for us. We have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Ephesians 1. We have the immeasurable, unchanging love of God, Romans 8. We have the unconditional acceptance of our beloved Father, Ephesians 1. We have forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future, Romans 8. Not to mention we have eternal life with God forever, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more enemies trying to steal our joy and our peace. And I could go on forever. Remember, all that Ira Yates needed to do was discover what he already had. Once he did, it would have been the greatest folly for him to continue living in poverty, and yet that's what so far many Christians do. Now listen, here's the reason why we do. You and I have an enemy. Suppose he's like a jealous neighbor and he hates our family and he wants nothing more than to destroy us. He knows how valuable the land is and he knows about the oil underground, but he can't buy it himself. All he wants to do is keep us from buying that land. But once you and I have come to Christ, that deal is sealed. The land is ours. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have now been bought back. You have been redeemed. You are a child of the most high God. You are beloved of the king. You are chosen by God. And truth be told, that land is now yours. And the enemy, much to his chagrin, he knows he can no longer keep you from owning what is already yours. But what he will do is he will do his best to keep you from discovering the riches that lay underground. He will keep you occupied with all kinds of issues and insanity on the surface of your life, equivalent to chasing chickens and raking dry, lifeless soil. He'll leave you frustrated, bitter, and convinced that this is as good as it gets. He will do all that he can to convince you 
that life has to be miserable and lifeless, dull drudgery and nothing but a burden torture. Let me tell you something. I've run into far too many Christians who believe that that's life and life abundantly. Can I tell you something? It is not. God is a God of joy and he longs to fill you with joy and peace and loving kindness. Look, I'm not promising you that life will be painless with Jesus. What I am telling you is there's so much more for you. There's oil underground. All the time there's oil underground and we forget that God has promised us life and life abundantly. I'd like you to look at me, with me, not look at me, you're already doing that. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Let me read this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I'm going to say that again. So from now on we regard no one, not ourselves, no one else, from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation, of being bridge builders, building a bridge between God and others, inviting them into the family of God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin for us to become sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. I want to talk to you a few minutes about just a few facets of the truth that are contained in this particular passage. We could drill down here for months on end. I want to talk to you about imputed righteousness. What that means is that God has given us his righteousness through Christ Jesus. He's actually made us righteous in his eyes. That means in right standing, in right relationship with him. Though our sins were red as crimson, we have now been made white as snow. This is hard for us to believe. And the favorite way that I illustrate this, some of you old timers know, is I ask you the question, how many of you are just as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God as me? And many of you might go, well, yeah. I can raise my hand for that. Okay, let's raise the ante just a little bit. How many of you are just as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God as, say, for instance, Billy Graham was? That might be a little harder for you. How many of you are just as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God as the Apostle Paul? (laughs) Now you might be feeling a little tension. And now I'm going to really ask you the harder question. How many of you in Christ are just as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God as Jesus Christ? You see, if you've had any hesitancy in your heart of raising your hand and answering that question, yes, by God's grace I am just as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God as Christ Jesus. If you have a hard time answering that question, you are in part basing your salvation on what you do, not on what Christ Jesus did for you. Your salvation has nothing to do with what you've done, more or less anything you haven't done. It has to do with what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. He bought you back. He redeemed you. 
You now are clean. You're a child of the Most High God. God has imputed to you his righteousness. You're like, Jeff, that's crazy. How could I be the righteousness of God? Well, let me ask you a better question. How could Jesus become sin? We just read in that passage that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we would become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. That's our new identity. Jesus became sin, but he was completely righteous. And we became righteous, though we were dead in our sins. This is the great exchange. Brother, sister, son, and daughter, you and I have been given a whole new identity. And the enemy wants to blind us to that truth. So today, we're going to look at our identity, who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, when you came in today, you received a little handout called Who I Am in Christ. I would like you just to take that for a moment. And as I read through some of these, I'm going to ask you just to look at them with me. And then I have a few questions for you. This comes from a ministry called Freedom in Christ. I'm going to talk more about that today. But I want to read this by starting first with the headings. The first heading is, I renounce the lie that I am rejected, unloved, or shameful. Would you say that out loud with me? I renounce the lie that I am rejected, unloved, or shameful. Now I'm going to read. In Christ, I am accepted because God says, I am his child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord. I am one, one spirit with him. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a saint, a holy one. <laughs> Some of you are going, I don't know who you're talking about. Are you calling me a saint? Are you calling me a holy one? Look, I didn't call you that. If you are in Christ Jesus, God has called you that. If you are in Christ Jesus, the word of God tells you that's who you are, a holy one. Listen to heading number two. I renounce the lie that I am guilty, unprotected, alone, or abandoned. In Christ, I am secure. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for good. I am free from condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. I am a citizen of heaven. And the list goes on. Heading number three, I renounce the lie that I am worthless, inadequate, helpless, or hopeless. In Christ, I am significant because God says I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I am a branch of the true fine Jesus, a channel of his life, and his life flows through me. I have been chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. I am a personal spirit-empowered witness of Jesus Christ. I am the temple of God, and his Holy Spirit lives in me. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am a fellow worker with Christ. I am seated with Christ right now, right now, in the heavenly realms. Now, listen to me. I have some questions for you. Knowing who we are in Christ truly changes everything. And if you know who you are in Christ, you no longer have to live. Excuse me, I'm going to get my remote. <laughs> you have to live on spiritual welfare. So I want to ask you, do you think believing these truths would change the way that you live? I'm not just talking about intellectually. I'm talking about believing and receiving them down into your heart. That you would walk in the truth of who you are in Christ. Do you think that would change the way that you live? 
Do you think seeing other believers this way would change the way that you treat them? The question is absolutely yes. Now look, Tracy and I have been working through this again. We did this many, many, many years ago. And part of the way that we're going as a body right now, uh, especially in our midweek equipping discipleship series, but in our centralized pathway for discipleship, is coming out of this. But as I've been trusting the Lord more in this area of my life, I have been changing. I have been sensing these gradual progressive changes in my heart and soul, and I am being set free again. But can I tell you something? One of the most beautiful things is I get to get up in the morning and look at that, that beautiful woman that God has given me, and I get to say to her, good morning, holy one. How are you today? Special you know, daughter of the most high God, precious um, daughter of God himself. Like I get to speak to her as she is God's daughter. Now, when I say these things, it changes the way that I see her. And I think if we saw truly People around us, how God sees them, it would change the way that we respond to them. More on that in a few minutes. So I want to posture before you today that knowing who you are in Christ is essential to your success here on planet Earth as one to glorify God. And today we're going to look at three ways in which knowing our identity in Christ changes us. And they are this. Knowing your identity in Christ is essential to your security. Knowing your identity in Christ is essential to your authority. And knowing your identity in Christ is essential to the way you love others. So let's dig in. Knowing your identity is essential to walking in security. We're going to go rewind the tape and we're going to go back to the very beginning of not only the book, but of creation. Now, I think there's so much theology in Genesis after working through that together. I'm sure you might agree. But in those first three chapters, there is so much foundational truth that we need to understand. And I'm going to focus today on the picture of the garden first and foremost. I want you to understand that Adam and Eve were perfect with God before the fall. They were perfect in every way. They had uninterrupted intimacy with him, uninterrupted intimacy with one another. There was no shame. There was no fear. There was no backbiting. There was no pain. There was no frustration. There was no bitterness. And listen, there was no self-consciousness. The man and his wife were naked and unashamed. And by the way, that doesn't just mean physically naked. It means in every way, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually vulnerable, And not afraid, not ashamed. There was no distrust. They trusted completely in the one who made them as we should. And as a result of that, the relationship with one another was perfectly the way it was intended to be. No self-consciousness. And so we have to trust God to, first of all, understand that picture. Now, what happened? We all know that spiritual death came to us. Listen to what he said in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Well, we know they did eat of it. We know that Eve took it first. She was deceived. Then she gave it to her husband. He took it, and they both ate of it. Now, did they die? Well, physically, not right away. I mean, actually, they lived, I mean, I think Adam lived 900 years. That's not too bad. 
But something happened. They did die. If they didn't physically die right away, this is what we know to be true. They spiritually died at that very moment. As a result of our sin and Adam and Eve, life, spiritual life was cut off. Cut off from us. You see, their relationship with God now was not the same as it had been. And spiritual life from God, that relationship was cut off. They died. And we've been living with the consequences of that ever since that time. But, but why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Well, let's listen to him tell us why. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Uh, okay, so what is he saying? He's saying, I've come to give you life back, spiritual life. I've come to restore your relationship with God. Now spiritual life has been restored in Christ Jesus. And guess what? We get to discover the riches of who we are in him now. Listen to what Adam and Eve had perfectly in the garden. Acceptance, security, and significance. They knew they were 100% accepted. There was no worrying about being accepted by other people, by each other, or by God. They knew it. They had it 100%. That gave them security. They were so grounded in security, they trusted and they were safe. There was no distrust, and they knew they had a job to do. They were significant. They had a difference to make because God himself gave them that job. He said, you are valuable to me. Listen to me. Daughter of the Most High God, Son of the Most High God, this acceptance, this security, and this significance is now ours in Christ Jesus. It has been restored by his blood, and you were made to have these things 100% given by God. But see, the problem ever since you were born is that you were born, and I was born, spiritually dead. We were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. We were born in sin. We were born as a result of the first Adam. You've been reborn by the second Adam. But you were born when you came here in flesh by the first Adam. You were born spiritually dead. And the moment you opened your eyes, the moment you opened your eyes, hopefully, you were flopped up on your mom's belly and you looked into her eyes. You were crying, which is an indication that something is wrong. And you looked up into her eyes, and hopefully over her shoulder somewhere was your dad. And, and he looked into his eyes, and you asked this question, will you make me safe? Will you accept me? Will I be valued by you now? You're not consciously doing this. It's just intuitive. It's in your gut. It's subconscious because you were made for these things. But see, no matter how good our parents are, every single one of them fails. Fails to show us how significant we are, how secure we are in God, and how accepted we are by him. But it's not just our parents. It's the world, man. We'll talk about that more in a second. But growing up here on planet Earth, we have learned to be externally referented. What that means is the moment you open your eyes as a little baby and then throughout your whole life been walking around, you've been looking through your eyes and you've been trying to find outside of yourself a reference point for your well-being, a reference point for your security, for your significance and for your acceptance. And so this is why so many of us are going through life trying to chase dollars trying to chase relationships, trying to chase people and make them like us. Why? 
Because we're starving for acceptance, security, and significance. But we're externally referented. And you know what Jesus did? He came and died for us, restored us to the Father, and gave us a gift. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who have you received from God? Listen to what he says here. But when he, the Spirit of God, truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Guess what? If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God lives in you. And now you have an internal reference point, an inner sanctuary of the soul where God can speak to you inside and say, all is well. I love you. I accept you. You're secure. You can trust me. And you have so much value to me. And everything you do makes a difference, my child. Know who you are in me. This is the gift of our new identity in Christ. And it's so important that we know this so that we can walk in security. Look, I've been learning this now for 35 years, but the more I go in Christ, the less external things affect me. And there's external things that come to me that are crazy at times. And they, yes, can kind of knock me on my can for a little while, but you know what God does? He then uses all things for good. Because I do love him, and I'm according according to his purpose. I only love him because he first loved me. But he uses it all to strengthen me and to grow me, just like he's using it for you. And so to strengthen and grow us into what? To knowing who we are and whom we belong to and to know how great he is. So knowing your identity is essential to your security, but it doesn't stop there. Knowing your identity is essential to walking in authority. Remember, Jesus was tempted in the desert. He was taken in the desert literally to be tempted by Satan himself. He was tempted to do things like turn bread into stones, to throw himself from a high place and put his father to the test, to bow down and worship Satan in exchange for worldly power and influence. But I really don't believe that those were the three primary temptations. I think there was a temptation that every time Satan talked to him, came across. Listen to these words. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, You realize that every time Satan tempts Jesus, he starts with this. If you are the son of God, he's challenging his identity. This comes right after Jesus has seen this miraculous thing and manifest people around him say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right away, what does Satan try to do? He tries to tempt him in his identity. Can I tell you something? Jesus was and will always be very secure in his identity, in who he is. And each time he replied with the word of God as the son of God. Every time I'm going to say this, he replied with the word of God as the son of God. And Satan takes the same approach to us. He challenges our identity. Now look, you can kind of think of this as Satan was trying to get Jesus to prove himself. I don't know how many of you feel this, but I've felt this throughout my life many times. I often feel insecure. I often feel inferior. This is my flesh speaking, and I feel these things, and then I think I have to prove myself to the people around me. Has anybody, like, experienced that? If you do, can I tell you something? That one thing alone, if you understand who you are in Christ, the weight of that falling off you will cause you to dance a jig. 
<laughs> because Jesus came to set the captives free. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So Jesus knew who he was, and he knew that he had authority over evil. I'm going to tell you about three ways that the enemy wants to make you miserable and ineffective. Remember, he cannot get you from, you know, he can't steal the land away from you. It's yours. But what he can do is keep you from understanding the, the depth of the riches underneath the ground and keep you kind of superficial and shallow and tied up, tied up on the surface of the ground. This is the way he does it. The first thing he does is he tempts. Remember, we just looked at the scripture. He's the tempter. Second thing he does is accuse. Listen to this verse. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Praise God. Can't wait for that day. But he is the accuser. He is called in the scripture the spirit of condemnation. Now the scripture says, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear it? So he tempts, he accuses, and then he deceives. Let me talk to you about deception for a second. The very nature of deception means that if you are being deceived, you do not know it. I'm going to say that again. The very nature of the word deception means that if you are being lied to and deceived, you do not know it. Now, praise be to God through Christ Jesus that he has given us his Holy Spirit, his word, and his people. If you are not making use of these three resources to test what you're telling yourself, to testing what you're believing, I would guarantee you're buying into deception. You have to go to the Spirit of God and the Word of God with the people of God to understand what the truth is. Now let me show you the cycle that many of us fall into. He says, say, for instance, you got a problem with cookies. All right, I've had that problem. I've had a problem with Oreo cookies. By the grace of God, haven't had an Oreo for a long time. <laughs> haven't had a cookie for a long time, but I have that problem. And usually when I would get tempted, what I would be doing is driving, and I would go buy the grocery store. And I'd say, well, maybe I'll go into the grocery store, but I won't get any cookies. And then I would go into the grocery store and say, well, maybe I'll go in the cookie aisle, but I'll just look and not buy. And then maybe I'll go into the cookie aisle, and I'll touch them, but I won't take them home. And then, I'll, oh, maybe I'll take them home that I just won't open them. And then I get home and I'm like, well, I'll open them and I won't eat them. And then I get home and I open them and I eat them all. And I realize once again, I'm back where I don't want to be. Guess what happens then? Accusation rushes in. So if the enemy can tempt you, he's going to get you to sin, even a little bit, and then he's going to accuse you. And he's going to say things like this to you, see? You're worthless. See, you have no power at all in God. Like, he'll lie to you and say, how could God ever love you? You're just a failure. Just give it up. Just continue eating Oreo cookies until they're coming out your ears and you're 600 pounds. Like, this is the kind of stuff that the condemning voice of our enemy says to us. Now, let me tell you something. Child of God, sometimes this is very subconscious. And you need to let God shine light into the darkness so that you can see these things coming to you. But out of those accusations, he will deceive you about who you are and about who God is. Let's give you an example. See, you're worthless. How could God ever love you? Well, first of all, you are not worthless. That is a lie from the pit of hell. But the greater lie is about God's character. Listen, God is love. God can't help but love you because he is love. That's who he is. So he's lying about who you are, and he's lying about who God is, and he's wanting to deceive you and have you walk in that deception. Because 
he will render you relatively ineffective in your life for Christ. So we've talked about this identity, knowing who we are is essential to our security. Knowing who we are is essential to our authority. And most importantly, knowing who we are, our identity in Christ, is essential to walking in love. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. I just said God is love. Now we're his children. Guess what? We are conduits of the love of God. The love of God comes through to us, and then the love of God moves through us. That's the way it's supposed to happen. Well, let me tell you something. The more secure you are in Christ Jesus, the better you can love people around you. Why? Because you are not subject any longer to their fickle hearts. Your love for them doesn't depend on anything they've done, more or less anything they haven't done. Your love for them depends on the love that you are receiving from God. See, now you're secure. Now you know that you are significant in Christ. And now you are walking in love because you are secure enough to love people when they don't love you back. You're secure enough to love people when they hurt you. You're secure enough to love people when they ignore you. You're secure enough in Christ and in who you are in him not to let the fiery darts of the evil one actually hit your heart. Listen to these verses about love. This is from Paul in Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Listen to John 17. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that you may be brought to complete, they may be brought to complete unity. Let me say that again. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Listen, then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Listen, what Jesus is saying here is the love that we have for one another is our greatest witness to the world that God is alive. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, and that you love one another. Very important that we understand the truth in 2 Corinthians 4. 4. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So look, I'm all for apologetic and intellectual arguments. I am, but you know what? As evangelical Christians, this has been our singular track for so long, we think we're going to win the world by just talking them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's not what Jesus says. Unfortunately, what's happened so often in the church is we live these lives as divided people. We have bitterness in our hearts. We actually haven't worked out forgiveness in our lives. And as a result of that, then we just kind of default to arguing with people about Christ and not showing them the love of God. Our witness is how we love. And knowing who you are in Jesus Christ frees you from other people in this way. Now look, I can tell you in my life I've been hurt. I'm sure my hurt is nothing in comparison to many of yours, and maybe my hurt is greater than others that you've experienced. It doesn't really matter. My pain is my pain. Your pain is your pain. The question is, what will we do with our pain? Recently, I've been able to say in my mind and in my heart, there's a lot of things you can take from me, Mr. or Mrs. There's a lot of ways in which you can hurt me, but can I tell you something? You cannot take away my freedom to love you. You cannot rob me of the freedom I have in Christ to show you love and service and kindness and compassion because this is the kind of person that I want to be in Christ Jesus. I want to be like him. Who do you want to be? Do you know who you truly are? 
In Christ, you belong to him. Listen to these words from Neil Anderson. Nobody tears down another person from a position of strength. Those who are critical of others are either hurting or immature. If we are secure in our identity in Christ, we can learn not to be defensive when people attack us and love them anyway. Now, when I read those words, I remembered a poem that has been often attributed to Mother Teresa. It's called Love Them Anyway. I'm going to read it to you today. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Anybody say amen to that? Love them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Amen to that. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. When you, what you spend years building, someone can destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough, but give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's always been between you and God. It's never been between you and them anyway. See, truth be told, when we are secure in our identity in Christ, we can walk in security, we can walk in authority, and we can walk, most importantly, in love. And this at Grace Fellowship Church is what we want to commit ourselves to now for the next season of Wednesday night adult discipleship. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what we're going to be offering, but I want to first tell you that discipleship is knowing who you are in Christ and learning to walk in the truth. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. My paraphrase is including them in the family of love, including them in the family of God, including them in the Holy Trinity, inviting them into this family and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want to remind you that our three visionary commitments are deepen our discipleship, tell our testimony, and empower the next generation. Now in close today I want to invite you to consider joining us on Wednesday nights. We're going to offer a 10-week class which is two five-week sessions beginning Wednesday, February 22nd. Now, by the way, there are tables in the lobby today, and my wife will be out there. Maybe I will be as well. Um, 7 p.m. in the Grace Worship Center. And this is called Freedom in Christ. I want to tell you how this came about. Um, About three or four months ago, I was prompted to pick up uh, several books that I haven't picked up for years. One of them was called Victory Over the Darkness, and this is Realize the Power of Your Identity in Christ by Neil T. Anderson. And the other one's called The Bondage Breaker by Neil T. Anderson, also Overcoming Negative Thoughts, Irrational Feelings, and Habitual Sins. These two books were foundational to much of my healing and to much of the ministry that I did decades ago. What I hadn't realized is that these two books had been developed into a full-fledged discipleship ministry called Freedom in Christ. So I began to explore that together. And I actually explored it then with the pastors. I explored it with the elders. And now the staff is walking through this particular course together. And this is the course that we will be offering on Wednesday evenings. Tracy and I believe together we'll be teaching this and hosting it. And you have a 10-week participant's guide, which you have. 
And then this tool is called the Steps to Freedom in Christ. This is amazing. And can I tell you something? God is again changing my life as a result of him using this material in me. I feel like I'm a different man than I was a month ago by the grace of God because of what he's been doing through this in both me and my wife and in our marriage, by the way. So the way this works is we're 10 weeks together for two hours, and then we go away for a half a day on a Saturday or some other day, and we work through these seven steps together. I want to strongly encourage you. Registration for this is going to be limited, and this is a pilot program for Grace Fellowship Church to see if we're determining if this is our pathway forward for centralized discipleship ongoing. But I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider joining us for this time. It will require a different level of commitment than past, but if you have questions, just come out and talk to us at the tables, and we'll do our best to answer them for you. So let me remind you, you are a child of the Most High God, You are deeply loved, fully pleasing, totally forgiven, accepted, and complete in Christ. You are his son or his daughter. And nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor anything will ever separate you from the love that he has for you. And as a result of that, you have security. You have authority. And you now have the freedom to love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I praise you for the great exchange that you became sin for us, that we now have become righteousness in you. And God, I pray now that we would walk from this place with our hearts and our minds full, a deeper understanding of who we truly are, that we might act accordingly, that you would be glorified right here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. God bless you, Grace Fellowship Church. 